In every family provision matter, there are points where your exposure to risk increases. Knowing where these danger points lie can make all the difference. In this program, Jen McMillan, Legal Practice Manager at LawCover and Accredited Specialist in Wills and Estates, and John Armfield, Barrister and Mediator at Wentworth Chambers, discuss the stages of a family provision matter and the points at which a solicitor is most exposed to risk. We examine how and why each risk point arises and what you can do to manage it. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Well, Jen, it's great to be with you. We're going to talk about family provision litigation today and family provision, the list just seems to get longer and longer and it's obviously an important part of practice for many legal practitioners. And at Law Cover, what we're concerned about is those areas where a practitioner might get themselves into trouble in the conduct of family provision litigation. So if we might start by talking about what the big risks are, for example, when you take instructions from an applicant. Well, the first and most important thing, Jen, is to make sure that you are within time to bring your application. Uh, as I always tell all of my instructing solicitors, who is the most important client in that office? And that's you, the practitioner. Let's be real about it. So the first thing when a client comes through the door and um, you realise that you are receiving instructions and it may involve a family provision application as you want to ask when was the date of death. Why do you want to do that? Because the legislation requires an application to be brought within 12 months of the date of death. There is a power to extend upon sufficient cause being shown, but that of course becomes more difficult uh, the further that the time has passed since the expiration of 12 months. And from the point of view of a practitioner, if you're acting for someone and you continue to act and you're not giving them advice to bring a claim, the longer they've had a lawyer acting for them and nothing has been done, the more difficult it is to get an extension because the court will naturally say um, the practitioner has been retained. It is part of the retainer uh, to give advice. If there has been a failure to give proper advice or alternatively if the advice has been given but the practitioner is not implementing it by filing the summons, then the risk that the practitioner runs is that the court will say time should not be extended, uh, the client should be looking to the practitioner for any loss mm. which might have been occasioned by reason of the loss of the opportunity to bring a proper claim. It's not a good situation to find yourself in um, and it seems to me that particularly with family provision claims, you might have a situation where somebody comes into your office and you have an initial meeting and they give you some preliminary instructions as to what they want to do. They go away and you send them their costs agreement and ask them for further information so you can get to work on pulling their affidavit together, but then they become non-responsive. What would you suggest a practitioner should do in that situation? I think that you've got to make sure that you cover yourself by appropriate correspondence. I think at the beginning, you've got to make it plain in correspondence that there is a period, namely the 12-month period, and proceedings have to be instituted. Um, if you are having difficulties getting instructions, um, particularly instructions as to whether or not to file proceedings, mm -hmm. you need to in correspondence confirm that and make it plain and point out the risk which may occur, namely that you have consulted me and if you uh, wish to pursue the claim and you don't give me instructions to file, uh, then you may find yourself out of time. Yeah. That said, there is, for reasons I'm not sure of, a misapprehension in the minds of some practitioners, namely that they think 
uh, you can't institute proceedings if you don't have the affidavit in chief completed. Right. Now, that's wrong. Uh, like, obviously, it is desirable, and the practice note, uh, namely practice note seven in the equity division, does envisage mm. that the affidavit in support of the summons, together with the notice of eligible persons and the cost affidavit prepared by the plaintiff solicitor indicating the costs on an ordinary basis from the institution of the proceedings to the mediation will be filed together. That's a convenient and logical approach. But that said... If you're getting if, close to the 11th hour, you might just put the summons on. You just whack the summons yeah. on. Whack it on, uh, to use a great Latin expression, and uh, <laughs> make sure that it's there because it is far better to have a late affidavit than it is to have an application that is out yeah, of time. Yeah. Um, like the other documents, you can probably... Uh, you can. The judge will remind you at the first return date. He will. <laughs> he will. Yeah. Okay. So let's assume that we've actually managed to get our summons on within time. What What are the other um, risk points for somebody who's acting for an applicant in family provision? Well, this is perhaps, uh, I'm not sure if this is a professional liability point, but it's certainly an important point to emphasise in terms of the preparation of the matter. I think it's always good to go back to basic principles and to say that uh, family provision orders are in a large part based on the the needs of an applicant. Um, uh, that's not to say it's a common law damages case or it's a matter of simply adding up a whole lot of figures. But the 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 touchstone for the jurisdiction is that the deceased uh, did not make adequate and proper provision for the applicant. So I think it is important to bear in mind that the affidavit should be uh, directed towards indicating the way in which the applicant says the provision was not proper and adequate and spelling out what that person says is the claim on the estate and the cost of it. Now, the other day I was in a mediation and I must say that I was impressed because this would prove the, 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 the rule by the exception, if I can put it that way. This was an affidavit which was quite thin in one way in the sense that the relationship between the deceased and the plaintiff was comparatively uh, small in terms of the amount of space that occupied the affidavit. But the affidavit set out quite extensively uh, what provision uh, was sought uh, the, and the cost of it. So in this case, accommodation was sought. So next to the affidavit were some domain searches saying, these are properties that I've looked at. They're two bedroom units in a particular area where I live and which I have friends and associates. The cost of them is X to Y. I've actually looked at these apartments. They are, would be appropriate for my accommodation. I'm informed by my solicitor and believe that the stamp duty on the acquisition of such a property would be in the range of X to Y. Uh, I'm also told by my solicitor that the legal costs on a purchase would be X to Y. Uh, if I was able to purchase that, I have a need for some white goods. So here are some uh, internet searches from good guys telling right. me Here's the television I want. Here's the washing machine. Here's the dryer. Here's the uh, the griller, whatever. Uh, I also need a car. I've been up to Subaru and here's a couple of cars which would be appropriate because I, don't, I want a medium-sized car. Mm. I've got a child that I need to transport. Um, I have a need for some medical work to my teeth. I use, from the dentist, here's a, if, if there is such a thing, a quote for the dental work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and I need a capital sum. The capital sum in broad terms that I want is that I earn X, I spend Y, 
the differential is X dollars. Uh, and next year too, and mark whatever is an extract from the uh, life tables. Right. It optimistically says I have 35 years to live. And uh, <laughs> uh, a, a fund which uh, of X dollars would, in a rough and ready way, take into account the differential. So it's a, it's a real uh, emphasis yeah. on substantiating the dollar figure that you've come up with. Yeah. I, I, in saying that, I don't want people to think that the relationship is not relevant. It is. I don't want people to think that uh, some element of history, of relationship, of the applicant's uh, education and employment is not relevant. Of course, it is. Mm. Um, and and that's set out, isn't isn't it in in the in the affidavit that's in the practice note? It is the the affidavit in the practice note uh, is looking at the factors in the legislation, mm. because when you look at the legislation, the Succession Act, you will see that in Section 60 there are what I will call a shopping list of factors and the standard form or precedent affidavit goes through each of them mm. from the... Uh, but there might be more to say about some than others. Yes, and the point I want to make um, in terms of uh, the way in which one should draw these affidavits, uh, certainly um, you should uh, tick all the boxes in the shopping list, you should deal to the extent relevant. But remember, at the end of the day, these cases are about dollars and cents. These are about adequate and proper provision. And what you're ultimately wanting at the end of the day is a family provision order, whether it's in form of giving you accommodation or a lump sum or some other form of order. And it is very helpful, both in terms of assisting you ultimately to settle the case, because you can say to your opponent, um, and then if you do the affidavit, I was looking at the other day, actually had at the end, I summarised my claim on the estate as follows. And in about six lines, mm. there was from uh, a summary of the figures and the amount sought. Now, it may have been a little optimistic, but that doesn't matter. At least there was some rational foundation yeah. and it did actually work back into the earlier paragraphs of the affidavit. So you could turn up to the mediation and say, there's $2 million in this estate uh, my client seeks $800,000 being the amounts which are articulated uh, in this last paragraph of the affidavit. And I mm. think that's a very uh, mm. useful thing to have in mind in terms of drawing it. Yeah. The other side of that dollars and cents equation is disclosing the applicant's financial situation as well, isn't it? It is. And I know I've occasionally found myself being surprised late in the day to discover that my client hasn't been fully frank with me. Um, are there any tips you'd have for practitioners in that situation? Yes. I think that at a very early stage you need to give the client a financial checklist. Um, there are a couple of precedents around, but essentially what you want is you want a, a checklist where the client is asked for to fill out their assets, their liabilities, to ascribe a, a, a dollar figure to each, and then uh, to set out the income and expenditure of the person. Um, and it's a bit like some of the family law checklists you've seen where the type of expenditure goes right through the full gamut of a normal household. But I think it's useful to do that. It, it, it's obviously difficult for a client 
perhaps to do initially these things with precision, but at least if you've got an idea of what someone's assets, their liabilities, their income and their outcomes, and you also tell them we need the same material for anyone who is living in the household with you, whether it's a, a spouse or a, a de facto or whether it's a, a child who's living in the household bringing money and paying board and contributing. Um, because the standard form affidavit requires the financial and material circumstances of the applicant, of any uh, person that the applicant is living within the household, um, to be disclosed because the court naturally assumes that it's a household and mm. if it's uh, either either the evidence has to say this is the position or if it's not the position and if someone is um, living independently and uh, their financial affairs are not intermingled, then the affidavit needs to make that plain. What you don't want to happen is to turn up to your mediation or your hearing um, and to be confronted with uh, an allegation that you haven't disclosed. Like I can remember one mediation I was at where I was on the receiving end because what happened was a notice to produce was given and a large number of bank statements were produced by my client uh, and they disclosed a position quite different to that mm. which was in the affidavit. It's an unpleasant surprise. And it is. And as I, I have a very uh, corny joke that I tell when I'm a mediator um, and that is I say to people, Barristers are like husbands and wives. They like surprises. They don't like shocks. And um, <laughs> uh, you don't like shocks, so it's better to ask the client, fill out the checklist yeah, and also bring me the documentation in yeah. because then you've got an upfront chance to say, well, you've said this in your affidavit, but hold on, there are all these withdrawals at an ATM. Mm. Like one of the matters that I was in was, uh, an estate which started off at $1.7 million and was then down to $275,000 and I was for the estate and the plaintiff, not unreasonably, said, well, where'd all this money go to? And uh, our answer was that it had all been gambled away. Um, so we were then asked to produce material verifying this which we were able to do. There were bank statements right. showing regular ATM withdrawals at various at club. places. Club. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, and, of course, the other area where you need to get a handle on how what the dollar value is that's involved is in relation to identifying what's in the estate or what could potentially be designated as notional estate. And that is a, perhaps a risk factor for a, a plaintiff because the executor is under an obligation to fully and frankly disclose the nature of the estate and any notional estate. Now, for persons who are not familiar with this area of the law, New South Wales is the only state in Australia which allows assets which, strictly speaking, do not form part of the estate to be what I will call clawed back or designated as notional estate. Give me, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, uh, two persons uh, hold a property as joint tenants. Um, one of them dies there's the potential for the notional share, which has passed by survivorship as a result of that person's death, to be clawed back as notional estate. Uh, the other areas which are often important are superannuation policies. Mm -hmm. um, so superannuation is often capable of being designated um, as notional estate. You can get into all kinds of problems there where you're waiting for trustees to mm -hmm. make decisions as to yeah. who they're going to allocate the monies to. And uh, but really it's up for grabs, isn't it? It's up for grabs, can often yeah. be up for grabs. Uh, the other area, discretionary trusts. Ah, okay. So, um, you know, there's uh, uh, some cases uh, where 
discretionary trusts have the property has been designated on the basis that there was a uh, a relevant property transaction, namely that the deceased uh, controlled the trustee and had the ability to exercise a discretion or alternatively... To allocate capital in the trust to himself. or someone right. else or they fail to exercise because yeah. uh, it can be an act or omission. So um, those things should be disclosed. But if you're acting for a plaintiff... You might not know. You might not know and you might want to make some inquiries because you don't want to uh, have a situation, obviously, where... Uh, you you give an advice to your client. Um, Is that something that you could properly interrogate on? Or? I don't think you'd be able to interrogate, but what you might do is if there's an issue, you might raise it at a directions hearing and one of two things might happen. If there's a real issue about it, um, then uh, I was in a matter recently. It wasn't it, The complaint which was made against my client was that there wasn't full disclosure. So uh, Justice Helen, who administers this list in New South Wales, uh, directed the plaintiff to put it on affidavit, setting out in what way, at least in broad terms, it was suggested there hadn't been full and frank disclosure and okay. then required the defendant to answer that allegation right. so as the issue was flushed out. Uh, the other possibility is, of course, is uh, a notice to produce, uh, not, not, not something which is uh, Common. Uh, 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 in effect, an attempt at discovery, but mm. basically asking for specific classes. Yeah. Um, so, for example, you know, any discretionary uh, trust, uh, any deeds which the uh, where there's a discretionary trust or other trust, um, uh, and of course, one will do one's own searches to check what property that might have existed and uh, whether it was held as a joint tenancy. But you could, in a notice to produce, you could ask for material gain that, and you could also ask for material gain to superannuation. It's quite common to see in notices to produce uh, a requirement to produce documents setting out what the deceased superannuation entitlement at the date of death was. So something that's, I say well-directed, I use that because I don't think that the court is minded to allow people to engage in uh, lengthy uh, discovery exercises which may not be productive, but on the other hand, I suspect the court if there's a basis for these suspicions, mm. uh, is prepared to uh, have the matter sorted out before the mediation. Yeah. Well, that seems sensible, doesn't it? Um, so that's if you're acting for the plaintiff, there's a few things to have front of mind. Um, when you're acting for the estate, for the defendant, um, you've also got this issue of, of having to identify who else might be an eligible applicant, don't you? Well, that's right because... You might remember, just backtracking on this conversation, uh, I said that um, the documents the plaintiff has to put on under the practice note um, in, uh, in support of the summons are the, the affidavit uh, in support by the plaintiff, the notice of eligible persons and the affidavit as to cost. Now, it is not uncommon for the notice of eligible persons uh, not to include every person who may be eligible, the plaintiff either may have left someone out or made a mistake. The classical illustration of people who are left out are former spouses. Yeah. Um, many people, uh, for reasons that I don't understand but none, they do not appreciate that a former spouse is eligible. That is not, of course, to say that a former spouse would necessarily succeed. They have their own succeed, category. <laughs> but, but they, they yeah. are eligible. Yeah. Um, also, people who are members of the household. Um so the plaintiff has an obligation to give you a notice, but if you're the for the executor, what you don't want to happen is you don't want to settle a claim and you've settled it on the basis 
of a particular size of state on the, fa- on the proposition that there is one or more than one claim and then you've done the arithmetic and you've said, well, if we settle on this basis, the beneficiaries will receive X and then to find out, uh, particularly if you're still within the 12 months that another claim can be brought, that further claims are brought and mm. your beneficiary doesn't get what you've advised them and there's always the risk yeah. then, of course, of, uh, of a claim being yeah. made, I would have thought. The classic reaction of an executor is, why are we telling all these people? Won't it just make more people bring claims? It is. And um, I have had so many people say to me, um, you know, we don't want to give a notice that might provoke a claim, uh, to which I say, well, the, uh, firstly, uh, uh, that may well be so, but the purpose of the legislation uh, is ultimately to ensure that any persons um, who may have a claim upon the estate are notified so as they can make a claim, so as that the orders can properly reflect uh, proper and adequate provision. Uh, by which, just to explain that, that if you've got three people who've got a claim, then obviously their circumstances and that of the beneficiaries have to be taken in the equation. Um, you don't want a situation where... Um, only half of the picture is there because it can lead yeah. to the kinds of problems I've indicated. So it is very important and, and, I, and I think, and I may be in a minority of one in this, I think it is very important to send out a self-addressed envelope and uh, a photocopy of the notice and ask the person to acknowledge receipt and to get it back. Um, uh, I think there are risks in simply sending something out in the post and relying on the presumption that it was duly delivered, mm-hmm. um, I think it's much better to ask someone to acknowledge receipt and send it back because then you have on your file and on your affidavit, which I'll come to in a moment, a, a document acknowledging receipt, whereas if you don't, the risk you've got is that someone says, well, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do if you can't track somebody down? Uh, if you can't mm-hmm. track someone down, you need to make inquiries and ultimately, if the matter resolves, you put that material before the court because uh, the court has an ability under the legislation to make a finding uh, that uh, their interest should be disregarded because um, the prerequisite for that is a finding that is unreasonable, unnecessary uh, or impracticable uh, to serve the notice. And, of course, there's a second reason you would do all that is that if you've taken reasonable steps to find them and if they then suddenly reappear, it may, I put my in quotes, it may be a basis to resist their claim. If you've tried to find them mm. and they haven't come forward uh, and you've settled you on a particular basis. You can put your basis, hand on your heart and say you did your best. You did your best then at yeah. least you could say to the court, well, in the exercise of your discretion, this is all. This has all happened, these orders have been made That and we have acted uh, in good faith and mm. in a sense to our detriment. Um, the court might say to you, well, all right, well, we bring everybody back and we designate the distributor state as national state, but at least you've done what you can do. So both from the point of view of getting the relevant finding made by the court and in protecting the estate, you've discharged your duty to the extent you can. What you don't want to have happen is I can remember two instances. One, I had a mediation where I was um, counsel in it and I was uh, assured vigorously that the uh, former wife had been served um, only then to find three days later that those instructions were wrong. Fortunately, when she was notified, nothing happened. I don't think she really had a claim. And, um, you know, the other instance was uh, being told uh, that someone had not been served and I I suspect they don't know that that was because 
a fear of the prospect of another claim. Well, it didn't come to fruition. But it is, I think, important to realise that family provision litigation, like probate litigation, is what I call interest litigation. In other words, all the persons interested in the estate need to be told and they need to be bound because whether it's a probate suit or it's a family provision case, you want to make sure that everybody who's got a claim or an interest knows so as that you can uh, say that the matter has been resolved, so as you can duly administer the estate. Yeah, and speaking of interests, obviously very interested in the outcome of a family provision matter will be the beneficiaries named in the will or on intestacy. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be quite hard for an executor to or or the solicitor advising the estate to manage those relationships with beneficiaries who might, for example, be affronted at the prospect of being asked whether they want to disclose their own financial position um, and they might also be very unwilling to see settlement negotiations happening. Well, I think it's important for the solicitor for the estate um, both to write to the beneficiaries and to speak to them and explain that it is the duty of the executor or administrator to uphill the will or the intestacy as the case may be and that involves putting on obviously evidence of the nature and value of the estate and notion estate but it also involves putting before the court evidence of the financial and material circumstances of the beneficiaries Mm. and it has to be explained to beneficiaries that if they don't put that material before the court the court will assume... Assume that they're rich. Well, <laughs> that's the practical realm. That's not the law. But the court will assume... The law is that they will assume that there is no competing financial claim and that whatever is an order for proper and adequate provision should not be reduced by reason of their competing claim. But uh, if I'm allowed to say it, and I still will say whether I'm allowed or not, yes, the court will assume they're rich, <laughs> they don't, that they don't need it. So I think I, I would rather put it in that sense to someone at the risk of perhaps stating the matter legally inaccurately sure. because I think that if you if you say to someone the risk you run is the court will say, well, you haven't put this material before the court. I assume you don't need it. Of course, that it, of course, it is not the law that you should increase the amount of provision for someone yeah. because someone else doesn't need it. They have to prove their case. But as a matter of practicality, um, you need to bring home to the person that if they don't put their circumstances mm-hmm. before the court, the court will take the view either, as I say in the collectors, you're rich or at the very least there's no competing claim. Um, again, I was involved in a matter where the widow did not wish to disclose to the daughter of the first marriage her circumstances and I warned her that the effect of doing that would be that the daughter would get more money and she said well I don't want her to know my circumstances they're private and on the third day of the hearing she said this judge is going to give this lady a lot of money and I said he is and uh, she said why is that I said because you, you didn't put your material before the court and I think you you know as I told you before you should have anyway there was then this undignified struggle to try and get this material in <laughs> it ultimately went to the court of appeal right. and it was really uh, a, a train wreck and oh, I don't mind describing it as that yeah. but well um and I, a, I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy for a, for a beneficiary in that situation because they haven't put themselves there, you know. The 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 person who made the will made them the beneficiary of the estate, then there's a family provision applicant comes along and suddenly they're having to disclose private information about their financial circumstances that they would never in a million years 
want to disclose. Well, I, I get myself in trouble for saying this every day, but I'm sort of say I'm not a private person. I don't care if all of my <laughs> circumstances are on the front page of the Herald, particularly if it means <laughs> if I get to keep it. So that's what I advise people. I say you've got a choice. You can be a private yeah. person. Uh, and perhaps lose some of the money or you can, uh, if it's on the front page of the Herald, not that it will be, um, then uh, yeah. you, you, you ought to balance that yeah. issue. And I, I think that's probably the message for practitioners that they need to give that advice fairly robustly. I think they do because the, it can cause all kinds of problems. It can cause a problem particularly if you have a mediation which is proceeding on a false footing because the plaintiff is saying there's no evidence of competing need and then the whole thing is a waste of time. Particularly, That's particularly frustrating if, mm. as has happened to me so many times, that you then get back to the judge for directions and the beneficiaries then decide to put the material on and if that material had been before everyone at the mediation, a much more realistic approach mm. would have been taken. Yeah. I think that, that is... Yeah. It is a practical frustration. Yeah. So we'll talk about mediation in more detail, but before we get there, it seems to me that any time you've got settlement negotiations where you're acting for the estate, there is this question of how, to what extent do you need to be keeping the beneficiaries informed and seeking their consent to um, the offers that are being put? Because sometimes you'll have a beneficiary who's very difficult to, um, to deal with. I think you need to be keeping the beneficiaries informed for a number of reasons. Um, but I'll start off by saying this. Uh, as I understand the law, executors do have a power to compromise proceedings. Uh, that said, I think there are very important practical reasons to keep them informed, the first of which, of course, is it's their money. Mm. Um, secondly, you don't want, whether it's with or without foundation, uh, a complaint about a settlement or a step taken which the beneficiary says has prejudiced them. Uh, it's also bad, it's not bad client management because you're acting for the estate, but it is bad human management and it is the type of thing which can lead to a problem for your executor if you're acting Quite for one. Quite right. Um, I think you need to uh, tell the beneficiaries, well, obviously you have to You've sought instructions as to putting their circumstances before the court. You've told them the mediation is on. Um, you have them at the mediation. As a practical matter, the checklist which the judge requires to be sent to him, I'm talking about Justice Allen, uh, before he'll make orders, requires material showing that the beneficiaries have consented to the provision being made. If they don't consent and if you, the executor, believe that the settlement is appropriate, then what you ought to do is notify them that you're going to ask for a particular orders to be made and you tell them what you're going to do and you say, well, you know, if you don't appear and object, then we will ask the judge to approve the settlement. Um, so I think it is important to keep them informed for all of those mm. reasons. Better that they're in the tent than out of it. <laughs> it is. Um, because at least then you can say to them, well, this is what is proposed. Um, if they then say to you, well, we're not happy, we're going to get our own advice about this, uh, you might say, well, all right, well, we will, uh, that's fine. The other thing you need to think about sometimes and um, is whether or not 
if you have a proposed settlement, particularly if it's affecting the interests of miners or people under some mm. form of incapacity or uh, whether you're going to go ask for judicial advice. Um, uh, yeah. Know, because you've got a proposed settlement. And that's um, really about protecting the executor's position, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Like I'm involved in a matter at the moment where uh, a contingent settlement has been negotiated and we're seeking judicial advice because there are various issues, uh, some of them are construction issues of the will, and uh, depending on one's point of view about how those construction issues were resolved, there are the interests of persons under an incapacity involved and uh, one wants to be cautious and do it. Um, I had a judicial advice summons earlier this year where I was acting for a beneficiary and the executors who had no beneficial interest in the estate uh, wanted to uh, settle the matter on the basis that uh, funds which were in a discretionary trust um, were distributed by way of lump sum legacies uh, to the plaintiff and the other amounts were held on a fixed trust for my clients and they got judicial advice that it was appropriate to settle on those mm. terms. And I guess judicial advice is classically for advice about whether to commence or defend proceedings but also appropriately the terms on which you might settle proceedings. Correct. Right. Exactly. And that's an option for an executor and I think, again, uh, it's you, you're looking for protection um, you've got to weigh up the cost of doing these things. Mm. But at the same time... Um, you, yeah, against some... the risk to the executor. Correct. Yeah. 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 And ordinarily an executor, if it was a properly bought judicial advice application, could expect to receive an indemnity cost order? Out of the estate, that's right. Right. Yeah. So particularly where the executor is not a beneficiary and hasn't um, hasn't got an axe to grind, it seems like a very prudent thing to do. I think it's something you've got to at least give consideration to. Mm, okay. So let's talk about mediation in a general way. How, how many family provision matters or what proportion of them do you think would um, usually settle before getting to a hearing? Oh, look, the vast, the vast majority of them would. Um, mm. I don't know the actual figure but I'm no. going to say you know, 80% plus um, that might be right or wrong. Uh, the reason I say that, when you look at the number of matters that actually are the subject of judgments on the... And compare it to the number to in the, the list. Filings, <laughs> yeah. Like we do know that, of course, the, the, the number in the list every Friday would be 80 to 100, but a number of them are in the list not on the first occasion. But there are a very significant number of filings and when you compare that to the number of judgments... Mm. Uh, it's a very small number that actually go to a contested mm. hearing which reasons are ultimately delivered. So that means, of course, that they're either being settled at mediation or in some other manner. And the way the list is managed uh, involves that. The practice note requires some form of alternative dispute resolution to be engaged in, um, and that is normally as follows. Uh, small matters, by which I mean matters... I hope I'm not being patronising when I say this, of under $500,000. Small as a relative thing, isn't it? (laughs) uh, Would be dealt by in the form of a judicial settlement conference before Justice Hallam, which are very effective because you'll get the parties and their lawyers in and he he won't talk about the matter in in terms, but he'll talk about the generalities of these type of matters and then people negotiate. Uh, then there can be a variation of that where there's a settlement conference in chambers and if you haven't resolved it by, say, 
12.30, you come across and the judge addresses similar remarks. Then between about, around about $500,000 and a million dollars, the registrar will often um, act as a mediator or the court and ex-mediation. For an estate of a million dollars or over, um, they'll be referred out to private mediation. Now, at the present time, I'm um, not yet an accredited mediator, but I have acted as a court-appointed mediator. Mm -hmm. um, I might be shortly accredited, but the, the judge has been prepared to refer these out uh, to members of the bar who do this type of work mm -hmm. and they act as mediator and a number of counsel have done that. And so in one form or another, uh, these matters are mediated in that sense of the word or more accurately the subject of some form uh, of alternative dispute resolution. Mm. Well, one of the things that we're seeing at, at Law Cover since... Um, the clarification of the extent of advocates' immunity in the High Court is we're, we're getting more claims that relate to the settlement process or that relate to the way the settlement was conducted. Um, and that's true of litigation generally, but I think it's, it's, it is true in, in family provision cases as well. Um, what are the things that a practitioner who's attending a mediation with their either their applicant client or that if the... Um, the defendant client um, is able to do to try and protect their position? Well, I think the focus needs to be upon, uh, if you are for the applicant, ensuring that you've got an enforceable order. Mm. Um, uh, an order that makes logical sense. And, and which can actually be enforced if there's a default. Yeah. And we do see some creative orders, don't we, in family provision matters. It's not always a legacy amount. No, there are different types of orders. So the, the, I shouldn't say the normal, but the, the common uh, form of order is for a lump sum of money. Yeah. So um, to make that plain, uh, the form of order will be that order that the plaintiff received provision out of the estate or national estate if the case... Uh, in the form of a lump sum of X dollars. Mm. Now, let's let's deal with that, which is the, the most straightforward, the most common thing. Well, you need to be sure that there is in the estate sufficient to pay X dollars. That's a good thing to check. It's a good thing to check. <laughs> so, again, going back to my own experience, this was there was a contested hearing and then it turned out that there wasn't X dollars despite what had been said in the affidavit of the executor. Oh, dear. So we managed fortunately, to make an application before a particular period of time expired under the rules because that's another mm. trick is that if a certain period expires then you can't do anything about it, you've got to appeal. But that must have been a heart-in-mouth moment. It was. Uh, and we, in effect, had a mini-rehearing and the provision was altered, was reduced uh, because of the fact the estate was smaller. So the first rule is to make sure that there's enough money there. The other thing is, of course, sometimes you are getting a lump sum of money out of notional estate. So you want to make sure that you've worked out what you, what property you are designating. So to put that into a real sense, let's assume that the deceased had a joint bank account uh, with a spouse and that joint bank account passed by survivorship upon death. You'll need to join the other hold of the bank account to the proceedings as a party, and you will need to designate the bank account 
for the purposes of it. Because there needs to be an order binding on that joint holder. Exactly. Right. And you want to make sure that there's enough money in there. Of course. And it may have all been spent. Exactly. It may have all been withdrawn. <laughs> uh, and again, a, a recent matter, I had the court required confirmation that an agreement in the draft short minutes, the draft short minutes provided that X account be designated as national estate, Y dollars uh, uh, be a lump sum, and there was an agreement that the ex-defendant would transfer into that account a certain amount of money within so many mm-hmm. days. Well, the judge said, no, let's do it the other way. Let's get a written acknowledgement from everyone yeah. that the money has been transferred in, and there was no doubt then the order could be satisfied. Um that's important. The other, so to answer your question, make sure there's enough money there. There's <laughs> a good, a good straightforward. The other problem which I've run up across, and sometimes there isn't a, a straightforward answer to this, is you get what are called uh, uh, crisp orders, which are movable rights of residence. Um, someone, the 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 plaintiff can ask the executors to sell a property and to purchase an alternative property and can also use proceeds of sale towards what are loosely called aged care accommodation. Refundable accommodation deposits. Correct. Mm. Yeah, well, what I was used to call bonds, but I'm told yeah. that's not right. Um, now, they can be quite complicated. They can. And they can, and they can be an pop- issue about getting that money back into the original estate too. So there's a couple of issues there. Uh, the first issue is... Justice Helen has suggested on a number of occasions, rather than having a crisp order, that there is a loan mm. by the estate to the applicant. Um, that and then seems like quite a sensible way of dealing with that problem, doesn't it? Can it can do that. And if it's used to purchase real property, it can be secured by mortgage. Yeah. Um, uh, this is anecdotal and all of these things are very much, to use a Justice Lindsay expression, fact-specific. Um, but one, I've heard it said that one way that you should deal with is to see if the person who's going to provide the aged care facility, um, if an irrevocable is direction is made by the um, applicant to refund the bond to the estate, whether that will work. Because uh, sometimes, again, this is anecdotal, I'm not saying it's completely correct, uh, I'm told that the money has to be provided um, by the person who's the resident. Mm. Um, that creates a problem for the estate because the estate um, is the person who's providing yeah. the money. So uh, a way it was suggested around that is that the applicant says, I give an irrevocable direction mm. that uh, upon me leaving the bond or other monies being refunded, uh, that it be paid to this estate. So they're the kinds of things. Now, whether you do it that way or some other way, yeah, but you do need is, to be aware that there is a, there is a, an element of risk there. Yeah, and you want you don't want to be sued for uh, losing the estate's money because uh, the mechanism wasn't provided for. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so you you really need to turn your mind to. Um, the wording in the orders, um, but also in relation to advising your applicant client in, or or the beneficiaries about whether this is something that they should agree to, um, would you be recommending that you get them to sign agreement or h- how do these things normally play out? Look, there's no hard and fast rule, but I have a couple of uh, practices. The first thing is for my own benefit, I always read out orders. Mm. Um, it may be old-fashioned, but I remember uh, Justice Windia, when he was the probate judge, used to say that it was a good practice for solicitors 
to read out wills to clients, and I think he was probably saying that in the context of... Rectification applications. Well, I'm not sure if he... <laughs> maybe, but certainly knowledge and approval yeah. uh, that they knew and understood. Yeah. But I think there's two sides of the coin. The first thing is I've never ceased to be surprised by how many errors I find in documents I've drafted when I read them out. Yes, yeah, me too. Um, reading something on a screen or reading something on a piece of paper... For me, I can't speak for other people, does not have the same impact as reading it out aloud. Mm. So I would suggest that you read it out aloud, pausing to explain the effect or you can sometimes what I will do, I'll say, look, the effect of the proposed settlement is this. Let me now read it out. Let me stop, not necessarily after each clause, but after each relevant component Mm. and explain it again then I think it is good practice to have the client sign uh, if they're there um, and that way you've, in a sense, got a contemporaneous record of the instruction. Yeah, or if you don't do it that way, like I've been in probate matters where I've signed as counsel, but what I do is I will email the short minutes to the solicitor and I will say, can you please email back that I'm instructed to sign them? That way, at least there's something on my brief yep. that I was instructed. And hopefully, to the solicitor has something on his file as well that it's been discussed with the client. Well, I'll leave that to them. But I, for my part, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I'm assuming that uh, file someone, notes, file notes, file notes. <laughs> I'm assuming that if someone sends me an email telling me I'm instructed to do it, they have. But yes, of course, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you would assume that common sense would be. That's probably a that's 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 obviously a false criteria test, isn't it? Because <laughs> common sense is not common. But one would assume that if an email goes out with here's the draft minutes, that another email went out saying this has been received, the effect of it is this. Um, please telephone me or come in. We'll discuss it. And that yeah. you know I'm sending an email back saying to sign. Yeah. I, I think well, I think it's good for two reasons. Um, firstly, as a, a risk prevention measure, yes, but. Um, at the end of the day, yes, of course we want to avoid risk, but we also want to avoid conflict, confusion and disappointment. Yeah. It's not, of course it is important that practitioners are not sued. That's what we're yeah. having but this in, discussion. But in fact but miscommunication is, it has all kinds of other bad effects. <laughs> it does. It, it has, it, at, the, at the lowest level it is uh, not good for professional people. It's not good for the profession. It's not what we're we're in the business of caring for people and for clients and achieving uh, the proper results for them. Yeah. And uh, I think that communication is very important, so as that the client is informed and understands what's going on. Um, at least in my experience, and I can't speak for law cover, obviously, is a lot of problems arise through a simple failure to explain. And uh, I think uh, if you do this, if you sit down and you read it out and you explain it, and sometimes you actually will say to a client, uh, this is not foolproof, these are some problems which could occur, Uh, you could do this, you could ask for that. Um, If you do that, that might have a domino effect of things you don't want to do, either it might involve you uh, disclosing things or it might resolve in this. And then at least the person is informed and I think that if the parameters are being fully discussed, there's much less chance of there being a problem either at yeah. a human... And you're more likely to have a satisfied client. Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think that that advice cuts across all kinds of practice areas, um, but it, it does have particular relevance for family provision. And thank you very much, John, for coming in and talking to us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.